This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Heavenly Father, as we just sang, truly how great you art, your power and your authority that you have displayed in nature, the peace that we have through the cross, the the strength that you exhibited through Christ when you raised him from the dead. Father, we do look forward to the day we get to see you, the day we are stripped of this flesh, and we can understand you and know you rightly and face to face without hindrance or sin or anything. But Father, until then, we pray that you would continue to grow us and teach us Father, we pray that you would use your word this morning to, to show us what you would have us learn. And ultimately, Father, my prayer is that you would point us to Christ and that through your word we would see a better picture of him and, and through that picture we would, we would desire in our hearts to worship him. Father, it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. This is going to be the last message in our summer series on, on hymns, and we'll, be, we'll begin in Romans chapter 1, if you all want to start heading there in your Bibles. I know you were looking forward to it, but unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get to that beloved old Isaac Watts hymn, Blessed is the man whose bowels move. Sounds like a Brand Flakes commercial or something. Maybe Lord willing in the future. So far, what we've learned is that God makes music sticky. He, he uses music. He created music to, to, to be a device or a vehicle through which we can memorize things better or easier. Um, anything, really, for that matter. But specifically for theology, it's why we need to be careful and guard what we have in our worship music because it's going to stick to us. And recently, we also learned that music, especially here in the context of worship, is a vehicle through which we can witness to each other. Like I said, you might see someone with their hand raised or someone crying or, or someone singing out loud, and, and the Holy Spirit works through them in our own hearts to, to draw us into to better worship alongside them. So if music, and, and I would say worship music specifically, if it is sticky, if it does stick theology to our souls, then I thought the best way to wrap up this series would be with something simple. Let's cut out all the extra lyrics. Let's, let's cut out all of the fancy songs and, and just spend a Sunday morning with a hymn that only has a five-note spread and repeats the same simple message over and over and over again. Now, that doesn't mean that, that the simplicity of this hymn lessens its importance at all. No. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The simplicity of this hymn actually elevates its importance because it's, it's the foundation on which our lives are built. Anyone here ever been to a professional baseball spring training practice? Do you think those guys know how to catch a ball and throw it to the right base? Of course they do. Then why do men who are paid millions of dollars, of year, millions of dollars a year to do just that, why do they practice catching a ball and throwing it to first base for hours at a time? Or why do basketball players spend hours shooting free throws? Or football players spend hours taking handoffs? All stuff that they already know how to do. Why do soccer players spend hours 
practicing faking injuries and doing their hair. I mean, don't they already know how to do that? Absolutely they do. Okay, it's good. Because it's what the Bible says. They do know how to do that. But that's not the point. The point is that those, those fundamentals are the foundation of their profession. Therefore, you can never practice them enough. And the same is true for us here this morning, not the faking injuries part, but have you ever wondered why God repeats the same thing so many times in the Bible? The answer is really profound. It's because we forget. And so he repeats it again and again and again. No matter how long you've been a Christian, it's never a waste of time to return to and to celebrate the foundation of our faith, which is the blood of Christ. It should not only be just our spring training, it should be our daily practice. Because listen, the thing is, is that this is what we're going to do for eternity. Is worship God this way, worship Christ this way. I've told you this before, but out of the 27 times that Jesus is referred to specifically as the Lamb in the New Testament, 22 of those are in Revelation. By far, we will praise and worship and glorify Christ as the Lamb who was slain for eternity. So, by way of a simple hymn that, that a preacher named Robert Lowry wrote in 1875, and he titled, Nothing But the Blood, we're going to practice eternity here a little bit this morning. And what I want to do this morning unashamedly, is I want to get something stuck in your head. And it won't be, don't worry, it's not going to be the, the uh, what's it called, the Meow Mix commercial jingle. Not going to, that won't be it. I will not sing <laughs> meow, 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 meow. We're not going to do that. I don't want that stuck in your head. What I want to get stuck in your head is a question. I want a question to get stuck in your head, and that question is, is it? Is it? Simple two-word question. The question I want to get stuck in your head this morning is, is it? Let's begin with the first stanza of this hymn, and you'll see what I mean. He writes, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, maybe you read this and you think, I didn't know I was broken possibility or maybe maybe you read this and you say yeah I know but just to make sure I want us to to look at 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 Romans in the first three and a half chapters of Romans Paul lays out his argument for the depravity of mankind beginning in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 listen to how he he begins this argument he says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul begins by, by saying that, 
that man has suppressed the truth by their unrighteousness. But what truth? What truth did man suppress? Well, he goes on to say that God's creation makes it clear that he exists. So the truth man suppresses is God's existence and power. And if that's the case, if, if, if God's existence is obvious, then Paul says in the rest of the, in, in primarily at the end of verse 20 and 21, that everyone is without excuse. Therefore, Paul says in verse 24, as he describes the descent of mankind, not just into to sinfulness, but into a total inability to fix it. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Then in verse 26, he says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And then in verse 28, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. So at this point, what Paul is saying is that mankind is so corrupt that their minds are ruined. That's what debased means. They're, they're ruined. Meaning we don't even have the mental capacity to change our state. It's impossible. Physically or mentally, we don't have the capacity to fix ourselves. Therefore, Paul says at the beginning of chapter 2, and he goes on to describe how God is justified to judge and condemn all mankind because he is righteous and we are not. It is a sweeping condemnation of all mankind. So mankind is corrupted, we're totally depraved, we're incapable of fixing it, and we're under God's righteous judgment for it. That's Paul's point in the first three and a half chapters of Romans. However, the question I have for you is, what's the first word of verse 21 in chapter 3 in your Bibles? The first word in verse 21 of chapter 3, but. It's a great word study if you ever want to do that in Scripture. But, Paul says, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Meaning, you, it's not, it doesn't come through the law. It's not by works. It's a different way. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, he says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what he just explained and now are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now listen again to the first stanza. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This hymn answers the question that has been plaguing mankind since the beginning of time. How do I get right with God? I might deny him out in front of you guys. I might say that, but I know deep down inside that there is a God and that I'm not right with him. And how do I get right with him? And you have Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, and any number of other, of other uh, religions trying to get right with God. 
How do I get right with God? There's only one way. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can wash away your sin and make you whole again. Not your effort, not your good deeds, not your good intentions. It doesn't matter how much theology you know. Satan knows way more theology than you do. The blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone can make you whole again. So when we sing, what can wash away my sin and, and what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The only question I have is, is it? Is it? Is the blood of Jesus the only thing that can make you whole again? Are you sure that none of your depravity can be solved on your own? Outside of the blood of Jesus. Is the blood of Christ the only thing that can make you whole again? Or, or, or maybe can you fix your own apathy with a new schedule? And maybe some resolutions. Are you sure you can't do good things to repay God for something you did wrong? Is the blood of Jesus the only thing that can make you whole again? Or do you try to be righteous in order to prove to God that he made a good purchase, a good investment when he saved you? Because look at the second stanza. He says, for my pardon, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And for my cleansing, this my plea, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Again, is the blood of Christ not only your pardon, but your plea? The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. He says, this is the blood of the covenant that com God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. He's talking about when the priest would go in and sprinkle everything with blood. He says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then he picks up in verse 11. About this shedding of blood, he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away the sins. He's describing this idea of blood everywhere. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Think of the billions of gallons of blood that were spilled between Adam and Eve and Jesus Christ. The ocean of blood of animals and the, the six liters of blood in Christ's body was enough once. He says in verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Put a little light on that verse. Speaking of this sacrifice that was offered once and for all for everybody, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Meaning, were you saved by faith or by the law? Then he says in verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Meaning, 
Were you, were, you, were you saved by blood and then now you're perfected by your works? We know the answer is, of course not. We know that. Like the writer of Hebrews said, Christ died once and for all to make those perfect who are being made perfect. Now, don't try to wrap your brains around that. You'll break it. But that's what he says. But let's think of this a different way. What is your righteousness meter at this morning? Maybe you say, I didn't know I had a righteousness meter. Where is it? I'd really like to know. You have one. Just trust me. Righteousness isn't something we really think about every day, though, is it? We don't really think about my righteousness, the level of my righteousness at any given point and any given day. Certainly at certain times we might think, yeah, I didn't do that right or that was pretty good or whatever. But, but for the most part, we don't think about how long has it been since you thought about how righteous you are? And you're like, well, five seconds ago because you just said that. But before that, how about this morning? How, how, did you think about your righteousness this morning? I mean, maybe you, maybe you made your wife breakfast. Maybe you read your Bible before you came to church. Maybe you didn't yell at the kids at all. Or maybe you did. Maybe you yelled at the kids a lot. Maybe you checked sports scores until you got to, before you got to church. Maybe you told your wife to make her own breakfast. Here's the more important question, though. Is that what determines your righteousness? Now, if I put it that way, of course, you're like, well, I know the answer to that question. No, I know if you say it that way that that's not what my righteousness is dependent on. But if we don't look at what we know and we think about how we actually live, if we think about what we actually do, is Christ your plea today? Is the blood of Christ what is also perfecting you? Sure, you've been pardoned by your sin. You've been forgiven for what you've done in the past by the blood of Christ. We get that. But is the blood of Christ still your plea to keep you from sinning, to, to, to continue sanctifying you? Or do you plead with yourself to stop doing that? Because I would venture to guess that, that if we're honest with ourselves in some way, no matter how small, that's how most of us think about righteousness. That it's what I do or don't do. That we're saved by the blood of Christ and now it's up to me it's, it, to prove to him that he made a good purchase. That now our performance is what God is looking for. And how do I know that's how we think? Because some days we think God is happier with us than others. Some days we think God is pleased with us and other days we think we've disappointed him. That's how I know that's how we still think. But just as this song confirms, God's very own word tells us that Christ died once and for all, salvation and sanctification. So that now when God looks at you, if you believe that nothing but the blood of Christ saves you, then God does not see our failure. He never did. He sees Christ. He sees him perfect. He sees his righteousness. Your sin and everything that you do wrong tomorrow is already gone. In fact, look at the third stanza of this hymn. If that's the case, look what he says. He says, this is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So again, I ask, is it? Is the blood of Christ all your righteousness? 
Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He begins in verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. You're not the same person. He says, All of this is from God, not you, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us that message of reconciliation. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, that God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Listen to this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, don't read past that too fast. It doesn't say that Christ sinned. And it doesn't say that Christ simply died for your sin. Listen to this. It says that God made him to be sin. Some of your translations would even say incarnate. He made Christ to be sin. Why? So that you might act righteously? No. So, listen, here's the truth. He says, so that you might become righteousness. He made Christ to be sin so you would become righteousness. Here's the truth. Anything you do now that is righteous, it doesn't obtain more righteousness for you. It doesn't make God more or less happy. No, anything you do now that is righteous is a result of you having already been made righteous by Christ. You're just acting like who Christ has made you. To say it a different way, you're you're not more or less righteous based on the righteous things you do or don't do. No, anything you do that is righteous is because you have already been made righteous by the blood of Christ. Wrap your head around that blessing and chew on it a little bit. That's just righteousness. No, how about your hope? Is the blood of Christ all your hope? Peter said in 1 Peter, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1, he said, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, knowing that you were were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that little word at the beginning where he says fully. And I want to ask yourself if that applies to you. Have you fully set your hope on the blood of Christ? Or have you diversified your your hope portfolio? Does your life say set your hope partially on the grace that will be yours through the blood of Christ and the rest on your retirement account and your kids and your spouse and your job and your education? Is the blood of Christ and the grace that you will receive when he returns what we have fully set our hope on? We can't leave out peace. Is is the blood of Christ all your peace? Listen to the irony. Listen to the the tension here that Paul gives in Colossians chapter 1. He's describing the divinity of Christ. Beginning in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, he says... 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, just in case you didn't figure that, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If Jesus stopped thinking about us, we would just evaporate. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You have any question about who Christ was, that's who he was. And now listen. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. How do you get from the one who by all things and for all things was created to blood on a cross? The only peace that matters is peace with God. All this garbage going on in our nation right now is because nobody has peace with God. All the garbage in the Middle East is because they don't have peace with God. Peace with God is all that matters. If you have peace with God, you can be at peace with everything and everyone else. But peace with God comes from one place and one place alone. The blood of Christ. Period. End of sentence. Close the book. That's all there is. Here's what I want you to hear and I want you to understand that is so perfectly reflected in this hymn. We already have all the righteousness and hope and peace we will ever need for eternity. It's all right there. The riches of those blessings, they're already ours by grace through faith in the precious blood of Christ. It's all right there. It's already ours, ready to be enjoyed. And, and the question is, is are you? Brothers and sisters, we stand on the beach in front of an ocean of the riches of God's grace and His love and His hope and His peace and His righteousness. It's right there. Will you wade into it as deep as you can go? Or will you stay and play in the kiddie pool that you brought from home? Are we ambassadors for drudgery and work and striving? Or as Paul would say, are we ambassadors for freedom and grace and peace and hope? The blood of Christ is all our hope and the blood of Christ is all our peace and the blood of Christ is all our righteousness. We need to be constantly reminded about, about this, don't we? Because we want to contribute. We want to be a part of it. We, we want to have something to do with it. We look at the outstretched hand of God holding this abundance of righteousness and, and hope and peace, and we say, we say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm with Sinatra on this one. I'll do it my way. We say, I'll have peace when my wife finally figures out I'm right. Right? We say, I'll have peace when my husband, you know, finally does what I told him to. We say, I'll find hope by forcing everything to go the way I want it to. And why do we do that? Why, why, why do we have all these riches in Christ and yet we still keep, keep wanting our own way? We still keep wanting this manufactured substitute? The answer is actually in the language and all the personal pronouns of I and my. It's glory. 
the dirty little secret is, is that, that, that we're still trapped in the sin of the garden. We're still trapped in, in this desire to share glory. It's a garden thing. I mean, the, the Garden of Eden. Let me explain to you what I mean. What was the original temptation of Adam and Eve by Satan? He told them, he said, you can be like God. You can know what he knows, meaning you can share in his glory. You can be like him. Now, now here's the thing. Most of us might think that maybe like Adam and Eve were somehow duped into eating that fruit. Like, like the kid I convinced to pee on the electric fence when, when I was young. Like they just didn't have enough street smarts to, to see past you know, Satan's tricks. But that's not sin. Don't believe that for a second. Adam and Eve both heard exactly what Satan had to offer, and they both thought, ooh, I want that. I want to be like God. And that desire has echoed through history right down to you and me here today. The reason we, we look for hope and peace in other places is so that we can have the glory. The hope and the peace and the righteousness that God offers, it isn't enough. It's too simple. It's too free. It's too effortless. I, I, can, I can make it better. It keeps backfiring on us, doesn't it? Your spouse won't get over it. They, they still don't get it. Your kids still don't listen. Your job still doesn't satisfy. Your retirement fund still isn't big enough. All our little glory ploys keep coming out of the kitchen like day-old oatmeal. It looks good until you take a bite. Brothers and sisters, this is all our hope and peace, and this is all our righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why? Because look at the last stanza. He says, glory, glory, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise for this I bring. All my praise, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I want you to listen how John describes the, the one we'll see on the day when we're finally stripped of this sin that I keep talking about. He says in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, present tense, and has freed us, past tense, from our sins. How? By his blood. And by his blood he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He says to that one, to him who by his blood made us kingdom and priests to God forever, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, nothing but the blood of Christ will make us whole again. Nothing but the blood of Christ can be our plea. Everything else is, is, is useless. Nothing but the blood of Christ is our hope and peace and righteousness because, listen, nothing but the blood of Jesus will bring us face to face with Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the only way we'll get there. Nothing but the blood of Jesus has freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom of priests to God. And therefore, because of what he did through his blood, therefore, because of that blood, 
To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. So I ask you one last time. Is it? Is the blood of Jesus all your hope and peace and righteousness? And is the blood of Jesus all your praise? If you believe that, if it is, I want that question stuck in your mind this week. If you believe that that truly is what the blood of Jesus is, then surely, oh, how precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. There's no other fount that we want to know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I can't begin to praise you and glorify you for the blood that you've, you've given us through Christ. Father, I know I don't even have the capacity to understand what Jesus endured during his life to remain pure, much less how impure I am and, and, and the need that we have for his blood. Father, that is only something that you can do for us to impress upon us the gap, the chasm between us and you. Father, I pray that you would show us and amplify for us and grow for us our understanding of sin. Grow for us our understanding of how far away from you we were so that we can see how big and how powerful how good the blood of Christ was. I pray, Lord, you would impress upon us the, the beauty and the riches of your blessings that we have through his blood. Father, I pray that, that our understanding as it grows of those things that others would begin to see that we have something they don't. I pray that they would see and want to know the Christ that we know that they would want to know about his blood. Father, I pray that you would do this in his name. And it is in his name that I pray. Amen.